a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play more interest no. rates. It's the animal spirit. You see, it's all about spending. Hear the register cha-ching. Circular flow, the dough is everything. So if that flow is getting low, doesn't matter the reason. We need more government spending. Now it's stimulus season. So forget about saving. Get it straight out of your head. Like I said, in the long run, we're all dead. All dead. All dead. All dead. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 139 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we're very excited to be joined by a guest today, uh, a communist geographer based in the Pacific Northwest, works as a freelance translator and editor, just finished an amazing dissertation in economic geography that we're going to be talking about today. Phil Nil, thank you very much for coming on TMK. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we 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 got Phil on um, a big shout out to a friend of the show Nick Chavez as well who recommended Phil uh, as a guest for TMK last month or so. We we did two episodes looking at the political economy of automation, uh, you know, surplus populations, kind of Marxist you know concepts around that. And, you know, through that, right, we were also talking about the role of automation and crisis. We were talking about concepts like secular stagnation. Uh, and, you know, Phil's work uh, in, in his just finished dissertation called Global China, Global Crisis, Falling Profitability, Rising Capital Exports and the Formation of New Territorial Industrial Complexes. This dissertation is amazing. It's so good. And in the very first section of it, Phil lays out uh, a, a, a series of theories about crisis. How does economics as a discipline and as a practice try to interpret uh, the, the, you know, crises within capitalism, try to understand how they happen, why they happen, and what we can do about them. And, you know, this is something that good TMK listeners will know that we talk about global crises and we talk about the, in, the inherent contradictions of capitalism, the inherent crisis tendencies within capitalism, but we are often uh, pretty much always doing it from a Marxist perspective, from this kind of heterodox perspective that's outside the mainstream of economics as a discipline and as a, a kind of state apparatus. What Phil has done in, in the first chapter that, of his dissertation, which we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about today, has laid out uh, really clearly and really compellingly the uh, a few of the mainstream theories within economics about how economists uh, and different schools of thought within economics treat 
this question of crisis, which, you know, for a very long time was not even a thing that economics really even recognized um, as a problem. But we've been living in such a long period of secular stagnation, so many obvious crises and booms and, uh, or, or uh, booms and, and then soon to follow bubbles and bust in the market that nobody can honestly say that crisis isn't something that we need to think seriously about. I think in order for us to understand how the global economy as this kind of, you know, state financial industrial complex um, operates and is trying to operate within periods of crisis, we need to understand the bourgeois ideologies. We need to understand how they themselves are trying to, to tackle these questions of crisis. So I'll hand it over to Phil. Phil, uh, you, you lay out in the beginning of, of chapter one that for a for many schools of thought in, in mainstream economics, crisis isn't even a, a, an issue that they've really spent much time thinking about. Could, could you kind of explain how the mainstream economists do or don't think about crisis before we get into some of these uh, more specific schools of thought and authors that you lay out? What you really notice when you kind of ask this question of like what you know, what have mainstream economists or what is what does not uh, just mainstream economic literature have to say about crisis? What, how does it understand uh, crisis? The, the first thing that you notice is that e economists mostly talk about crisis kind of only when it happens and in the immediate aftermath of it happening. So it 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 kind of bursts into reality and that forces them to address it and start to talk about it and whatnot. Now, one thing that does happen because of that is that you have a lot of theories of individual crises. So individual market crashes happen and then you get uh, e economists or, or big global economic institutions like the IMF or World Bank, they, they'll often release, you know, literature on the causes of this individual crisis. But that's not really what I was looking for when I started to uh, do this research. I was looking for what are there any kind of standards for how economists understand crisis as, as such? And what's the point of really asking that question? Because like you said, there's this vast heterodox uh, literature that essentially addresses this question, whether or not we're talking about kind of Keynesian, post-Keynesian, left-Keynesian type things, or we're talking about what usually gets lumped together as like a Marxist tradition of, of crisis theory. So why, why really try to pursue an understanding of what mainstream uh, economists say about it? This, I think, is actually a really important entry point, because if we think about if, for example, we think of ourselves as, as Marxists in, in some fashion, and in the in the dissertation, I actually talk about why it's a little bit better to usually pose this as a, as a question of a communist theory of crisis rather than like a Marxist theory of crisis, because a Marxist theory of crisis gets you down all these weird little Marxological uh, rabbit holes that are very interesting to like historiographical research and uh, very interesting to people who like to delve into archival um, things and try to figure out exactly what Marx was saying and where he was writing this document and what was going on while he was writing it, et cetera, et cetera. And those things are interesting in their own uh, respect and they're important for understanding the context of our inherited uh, tradition. But it's a little bit different than the question that we're really asking because the question that we're really asking is, look, this shit is happening in the world. These crises are happening. Is there anything that ties them together? Is there any way to kind of understand this, this vast monstrosity that is the global economy, right? How do we understand it's, it's uh, to go back to 
you know, this, this language from Marx's laws of motion. How do we understand the shape that it takes in actual territories developed like on this, on the crust of the earth? How do we understand those, those things, how it actually exists? And in order to understand how it actually exists, you kind of have to also engage with this, uh, like you said, being this kind of bourgeois ideology that, that, um, enshrouds it. I like to think of it, um, I don't actually think this is in the dissertation, but it's it's a metaphor that I like to use like in teaching uh, about, about uh, crisis theory and about some of this kind of communist theories of, of crisis and of capitalism. Um, you know, one of the most common depictions, like cartoon depictions of capitalism is this, this kind of like giant squid that encircles the earth, right? Uh, and it kind of, this kind of comes back again and again. It used to be the portrayals of like standard oil. Uh, and then more recently after the 2008 crisis, it was the uh, Goldman Sachs vampire squid uh, type thing. I think this is kind of an interesting metaphor because if we actually, we can actually think, uh, make it a little bit more complex than this. If it's just a giant squid, you kind of know where the head is, where the limbs are, right? But actually how it really works is, yeah, there's this like squid-like thing, this thing that's enmeshing and encircling the earth, this capitalist mode of production, right? It exists out there. It takes the form of these giant logistics complexes and factories and railroads and uh, maritime shipping routes. We all know that, right? It does actually exist, but at the same time, it kind of disguises itself. So it's kind of more like a squid that's all constantly moving in this shroud of ink, right? That's like surrounding it at all times. And that shroud of ink is this bourgeois impression of how it works. So it gives it kind of a false shape. That shroud of ink can take all kinds of shape. It doesn't look like a squid. It looks like a nice little goldfish or something. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it basically just obscures what's going on underneath. Now, it's kind of a little bit of a simplistic metaphor when you really dig down into the difference between reality and appearance in, you know, Marx's writing. But the basic idea is that it actually is important to understand that that ink shroud as well, that bourgeois covering of how we pre- how how that that squid thing that that alien monstrosity that is the economy, how it exists under that ink shroud. Uh, it, it actually generates that ink for a reason, and, and that's related to its underlying structure. So Marx talks about this in the form of like all these these fetishes that that, that form. Uh, the, you know, you have these commodities, and they look like uh, economic inter- interactions look like relationships just between these commodities, and you're just buying commodities. You don't have relationships with other people. This, at a higher scale, then generates what he uh, is critiquing right in in capital because capital is a critique of political economy it's not marxist political economy political economy version two etc etc it's a critique of political economy and political economy at the time uh, at the time that he was writing right political economy just uh, basically was this lump term that, that encapsulated what we would think of as as economics as a discipline today, plus some other social kind of theories that were tacked on under that same banner. So why does he think it's so important to engage with these people when he clearly thinks they're wrong, right? That's a really interesting question. If you read uh, theories of surplus value, there are these kind of other drafts in that, that were formulated in the, the lead up to um, the multi-year project, multi-decade project, project that was the drafting of capital and all the later economic works. Um, it's all about these engagements with people like Sismondi and with... Um, you know, Adam Smith and those people, of course, but also the physiocrats and all these people that many of us don't know anything about today, 
right? The, these but these people who were like the premier, uh, I don't know, Sismondi, the Larry Summers of his time or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, maybe a little bit mean to Sismondi, but like uh, that sort of status, right? Uh, economics wasn't quite as integrated into the state uh, at that time. So it was a little bit more of this academic uh, uh, inquiry, right? But it, it there's a, there's a reason that Marx is engaging with that stuff. If he clearly thinks it's wrong, but he thinks it's also worth engaging because it's not just that the, the, the ink surrounding the squid doesn't have substance. It is its own substance substance. And that substance like actually tells us something about how the, the system uh, itself works. So that first portion of this uh, dissertation that you're talking about, that's basically me saying, look, I, I'm interested in the real you know, the, the actual squid under there, under all that ink and how it's, how exactly where those tentacles are wrapping themselves around the globe. But I do think that there's something to be said for this kind of Marxist method of inquiry. And here it really is kind of a Marxist method because it's Marx's own method of beginning with, with this critique of, of, you know, what then was political economy. And now is maybe just a general, uh, critique of, of economics or, or, uh, colloquial economic understandings as they're expressed. It, I, I would think of it, I, and I say this in the dissertation, I kind of actually deal a lot more with uh, practical economics or like working economists. And, and that's important because uh, it's important for a couple reasons, but th- the main reason here is just that these working economists, people who work for like economic, like think tanks, research institutes, economic uh, journalists, people who have to kind of trace the flow and the people who work for these like hedge funds and investment uh, consulting firms. That's the kind of working economists that I mostly deal with. They are the ones who have to uh, prove their theories in kind of real time to investors. They also have to make sense of a lot of things that mainstream economists don't really actually even have to deal with. So they don't, the mainstream economists don't have to deal with like more local day-to-day turns in kind of the market, whereas these people who work as kind of economic journalists or consultants, they have to deal with some of those questions about like uh, immediate market prospects and then long-term investment prospects for the shareholders in like mutual funds or whatever that they are uh, advising. So I I deal a lot more with these kind of working economists in a lot of the theory that I uh, engage with. And there's a couple exceptions to that, but they're but they're really not uh, huge exceptions. The other reason that I have to do this, though, is because a lot of the core mainstream economists, again, they don't have a theory of crisis as such. They don't really offer much of a theory of crisis as such, or they just repeat the last theory that was kind of formulated in the crises that emerged out of the 1970s, which is basically the monetarist consensus that exists uh, today or or kind of exists in this weird undeath today because everyone knows that it's kind of wrong now, uh, but it, cause it didn't prevent the crises that it was supposed to prevent. But at the same time, it's still the ingrained form of uh, federal reserve, like interest rate management, like the, all that stuff is, is it has this monetarist consensus that was formed in the response to the, the crises of Keynesianism back in like the seventies. Um, and again, working Keynesianism, like Keynesianism as it actually existed, which I think is an important uh, important distinction. So that's why I start there. And we can dig into individual uh, parts of it if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think we should definitely do that. Um, to that point, though, and I, and I did want to bring this up as well. So a great segue here. But I, I think it is also it is very interesting to 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 see how um, this idea of, of 
the mainstream economists paying attention to discrete crises. So, you know, they're paying attention to uh, the Great Depression, right? Um, which is, you know, you brought up monetarism as this kind of, you know, very uh, you know, powerful school of thought within um, economics. And the main proponent of it uh, is, you know, Milton Friedman, who got a, a Nobel Prize in economics, the, the fake Nobel Prize, uh, for essentially his work on, um, along with Anna Schwartz, on the Great Depression, on trying to explain provide a monetarist explanation of how the Great Depression happened, what policies led to it, and how it could have been prevented. And that is what won him the, the, the Nobel Prize. And so that is itself very interesting to see how that was not creating a general theory of crisis, but instead creating a, a, a theory uh, about one crisis um, in particular. And, you know, we'll get into it um, as, as well. But, you know, some another author you talk about, Richard Koo, you know, it's like uh, also, you know, look, trying to understand um, a, a crisis happening in Japan, but also, again, looking back at the Great Depression, like, you know, they seem to have this kind of the Great Depression as a cornerstone um, or, or, or even as a safety blanket, right, that they continuously kind of go back to um, because it's historical, right? You've got hindsight of 2020. Everyone knows about it. Um, and it's also the benefit of, of trying to say this was an anomaly. Uh, instead, it seems like for a very long time, um, the mainstream thinking in economics, and we still see this, um, was the, the, uh, the boom and bust, uh, you know, it was business cycles, right? These are just natural motions in the cycle of business activities where there's going to be a boom and there's going to be a bust. It's almost, uh, you know, the animal spirits as Keynes talked about it. We'll get into this with some of the other specific people like Ku talking about like vigor in the economy where it's almost this mysticism. Right. This is why there's a sculpt a, a sculpture of a bull on Wall Street is because that's the animal spirit of a bull market, right? A, a strong, vigorous market versus the animal spirit of a bear market, right? Uh, a market that's on a decline. But again, these aren't theories of crisis. This is just them saying this is how these things work. work, work, work. You know, we move on from uh, the, the, this kind of, you know, business cycle mentality, the animal spirits uh, to there's a, a part in, in your dissertation. I'm just going to read it here. You say, you know, in the years after 2008, the mainstream economics discipline was in shambles as it attempted to explain away its own long term denial of the crisis that had just occurred. It was in this context that the term secular stagnation was revived by none other than Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary under Clinton and head of the National Economic Council under Obama, where he was faced with the reality of the new economic situation firsthand. 
This signaled the reopening of mainstream economics to crisis theory, which had long been excluded from the accepted orthodoxy. So here it's you know very interesting that uh, you know this this kind of obsession in mainstream economics with individual crises and and with the Great Depression as the the kind of star on top of the tree. And here it it was finally. Uh, the great recession, the global financial crash, and you know, and and the undeniable secular stagnation. And just as a reminder for listeners, right? Secular he here meaning um, long term, as opposed to um, cyclical uh, or these kinds of uh, just normal cycles of boom and bust. It was finally, you know, our our living generation experiencing our own, you know, great depression, great recession that. Finally, made economists and uh, mainstream ones think, oh, maybe maybe we do need to actually understand what crises are and have a theory of crisis. So, with that that kind of laid out, I do think it is very interesting as well. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of the people you focus on are, are these working economists, and with that, um, part of that is is because there's a a necessary pragmatism to their work, um, and it seems like to me. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of the mainstream economists who are trying to uh, come up with theories of crisis are largely working within the tradition of Keynesianism. You know, some version of Keynesianism, whether it's the you know the new Keynesianism uh, of of people like um, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, right? These other Nobel Prize winners who we all know, or the more like left uh, left Keynesianism or post-Keynesianism who are more generally uh, social democratic people like Thomas Piketty or, or Randall Ray. Uh, but it seems like it's, it's the, the, uh, the Keynesians who are kind of taking the day here in terms of mainstream economists coming up with theories of crisis. And from your telling, it's because Keynesianism has this kind of inherent pragmatism in, in, uh, in the theory itself. Yeah, well, I, I don't know that it, because I think you saw the same thing happen in response to the crises of the 70s with the formation of what is today like the monetarist consensus. So the monetarist consensus kind of, uh, it, you know, it emerges using some analysis of the Great Depression and whatnot, but to base, mostly to explain what was going on in like the, the 70s. And in, in that period, responding to stagflationary crises, why weren't these uh, Keynesian style uh, management kind of tools. Why weren't they not working to to quell the crisis, et cetera, et cetera? So I don't know if it's anything that's necessarily inherent to Keynesianism. Although Keynesianism is is itself a very very broad term that almost it very frequently becomes you know almost uh, just synonymous with with any sort of heterodox economic thinking today that is not Marxist. And people use it kind of that broadly. So it's a little bit difficult to say exactly what is and isn't Keynesianism. I think um, I in the dissertation, I quote Jeff Mann's book a lot, actually, which I think gives the best definition because it's the broadest, this broad definition that's basically about that Keynesianism is about preserving civilization, <laughs> um, which it sounds like a funny thing uh, to say. But when you really think about it, yeah. Yeah, it, it sort of makes sense, right? It's about like acknowledging that there's these problems with capitalism, but the only thing worse than not having capitalism is, um, you know, not having capitalism. <laughs> the, the The idea is that is that, you know, yeah, there's these problems with it, but you have, um, 
you know, you have to preserve that civilizational substrate that it also kind of props up. Uh, and if you get rid of capitalism, all the bad things, you're going to take away that civilizational uh, thing that's upholding like polite society or whatever, because they're kind of obsessed with civil society and that these administrators and whatnot. So I think it's a good theory of what Keynesianism is. But here, I, I want one thing I really wanted to do is step out of some of those inherited presumptions that we sort of get when we learn about economics, which is like, yeah, there's these Keynesianisms, and we could subdivide them into post-Keynesians, left Keynesians, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's these monetarists or these like, you know, there's the orthodoxy or whatever, how we, however we define it. Um, I wanted to kind of step outside of that and just say like, if we if we set that aside for a second and just look at the people who are trying to, in some fashion, formulate something that looks like a general theory uh, of crisis or understands crises beyond the single individual causes of a particular crisis. Like, what are they doing now? What are they saying? Because you actually, the, uh, you mentioned business cycles a bit earlier. The business cycle theory, as in its kind of current form, as it links to Schumpeter and um, some other people in that era, it sort of comes from a period of trying to deal with some of these questions in, in a similar way. And there's other, um, there's these other working economists in like the 1920s into the 1930s who who delve into some of the same questions for some of the same reasons, because there's clearly this kind of crisis thing that's, that's playing out or building up or something. And they're, they're trying to, uh, trying to make sense of it. So I'm dealing with these working economists who, who basically have to, uh, regardless of whether they think themselves as Keynesians or not, many of them somewhat come from that tradition. Others are basically just normal PhD economists, like they got, they got academic training in mainstream economics department somewhere um, at some high level economics department out in the world. And they went to work for research institutes, hedge funds, uh, these, these consulting firms. And in that capacity, many of them realized a lot of things that they had learned just don't work like in practical um, in, in practical terms of like advising investment right and they had to confront some things which sound uh, there's this guy Michael Howell uh, and he wrote this book called capital Wars he he basically runs this analytics firm that can that provides consulting information for major investors like mutual funds hedge funds uh, these sort of big institutional uh, uh, powers within the global finance Um and in that book, you know, one of his central things, he's just like the biggest, the biggest thing determining some of these flows of global liquidity and long-term trends in global liquidity is the fact that there's across the board falling profitability in investment in productive uh, activities, right? And that sounds very much like this old orthodox uh, Marxist position. It's even, it's even phrased in a way that is more extreme than many people who do communist uh, crisis theory today would phrase it, where he's just saying like, look, falling profitability, that's what it's about. You know, uh, it's very much kind of classic old, uh, you know, law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall stuff. But this guy is, you know, uh, economics PhD working at this, this giant analytics firm advising hedge funds. And so th this is definitely not like an attempt to approach the question through those sort of textual things like what did Marx say? It's more like, what are people saying now? And then later on, I, I also look at like what what looks like it's what what looks to be happening on the ground. I'm really enjoying the, the flowing of this conversation because I think this is a, a domain I definitely am. I guess one of the threads in your in your thesis and the parts I was able to read that I'm really interested, in, I guess, new to is also this history of 
or the the waves of various economists trying to struggle with and argue about what are root causes of secular stagnation. But also, I was interested in. I know it's a it's a little bit outside of chapter one, but one thread I would be interested in hearing you talk a bit about is, um, you know, attempts to. I guess, harken back or adhere to or connect back to Marx's critique and whether or not these are, I think in the thesis you talked about whether or not they're, they actually are Marxist theories in of themselves or Marxist frameworks or just uh, connecting to specific, specific parts of Marxist theory. And I wanted to know if, um, or I wanted to just like hear, maybe talk through a bit about what you see today in some of the, in, in some dominant orthodox and heterodox theories that, that are, I guess, trying to, you know, revive or rebuke fragments of Marxist analysis, an explanation for crisis. Yeah. Um, so kind of at the, at the very beginning uh, of that, uh, this focus on kind of secular stagnation, I, I sort of use that as an entry into reexamining a lot of these theories of crisis that have come from the Marxist tradition as well, because there's this really important distinction Um one problem that you also run into looking at now the broader realm of theories of crisis, so including these these kind of working economists uh, accounts of crisis, including kind of the, the broad Keynesian, left Keynesian, post-Keynesian uh, realm, and then also looking at what usually get tagged Marxist theories of crisis, right, all up, up until today. A lot of the time, especially within the uh, Marxist realm, uh, there's a lot of confusion about what exactly people are talking about. And there's this very, very frustrating um, tendency among critics of people who've given various theories of crisis to turn them into these very weird little uh, straw man theories where they they pretend like what people are trying to do is theorize, uh, give a theory of the precise periodicity of crisis, uh, crises in a way that would almost be like a forecasting model of crisis, right? And the reason that people do this, uh, Simon Clark is this uh, uh, Marxist uh, sociologist uh, from uh, the UK back, and he was involved in this um, particular kind of school of debate there. It's very interesting. Uh, but the, he, he has this great book about uh, Marxist theory of crisis and the debates that have occurred. And, and this was written decades ago now, so it's not really up to date, but it was, it was, uh, all, it includes a, a really, really good overview of, of the act, Marx's actual writings and kind of the, the sequence of events that was going on in those, those writings. And one thing um, that he kind of points out is that one, one reason that people tend to gravitate toward this kind of weird caricature theory of crisis of periodicity and forecasting kind of crises is because there was like this period where Marx kind of wanted to do that. And he kind of thought that he could do that. And then he gradually abandoned that project because he found, he figured out that it just doesn't really, doesn't really work. It's not really going to, going to pay off. It's not really fruitful. They, him, he and Engels make all these kind of overly hopeful uh, predictions of like the next crisis is going to happen now. And then it doesn't happen. You know, they do that a few times and then they're like, you know, maybe it's not quite as periodic as, as we thought. Maybe that's not really what, what's going on, but that generates this kind of caricature of what, what, what was called Marxist crisis theory was trying to do as if it was trying to create this forecasting model for periodic crises. Right. And that's really never been what any serious person engaging with that literature has ever been trying to do uh, since the very, you know, since Marx and Engels abandoned it themselves. 
anyone who's engaged with it in depth has, has not really tried to do that, but it's still a very common uh, thing that's leveled against people who try to do it. Like, oh, you know, you're trying to predict when the next crisis happens or, you know, trying to create this theory of the oscillating waves of, of business cycles, uh, you know, essentially. And that's really not, not the point. But it does get uh, it does get to this very important distinction. And this comes out in that Simon Clark book I was talking about. A lot of people are able to misread that book. Like he's saying, his conclusion is that Marx th- therefore doesn't have a theory of crisis. And that's like a severe misreading of his, his argument because he's talking at, through all these points, how there is this theory of this crisis tendency built into uh, capital and, and other economic writings. It's there. It's very present. He talks about it uh, thoroughly. He talks about chapter 25, this general theory of accumulation and the law of uh, the law of accumulation and the crises that come with that. And that's, you know, that deals with, with, with very specific things. And, but the, the real distinction that it kind of points out is this distinction between theories of, of, again, like individual crises. So the theory of what happened when in an individual way, a boom and bust cycle, right. And this theory of it's gone by different names. Sometimes it's just also called crisis theory used to be called theory of breakdown. And that's something you get from, from Heinrich Grossman uh, and that kind of tradition uh, that looks at his work. But then the theory of breakdown, people started to use this kind of characterized version of it that uh, relates to this thing called decadence theory, where it's like this idea that capitalism is just uh, faded to, to break down on its own. And then you don't have to do anything for whatever, which is a, again, a joke. If you actually read Grossman, what he's saying, but again, these kind of caricature straw man versions of these things are often what you have to respond to or engage with to some extent. But th- that's a very important distinction that I try to draw out in what I'm working on is this, the fact that these two things coexist, right? Individual crises happen. They don't have any kind of inherent periodicity, but there are reasons for why some stretch out longer. Uh, there's, and there's longer periods of prosperity between some and not others, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there are reasons for that, but there's no inherent periodicity to it. But there's these theories of individual crises as they break out. And then there's this theory of the, the long crisis, right? This theory of, of long-term kind of breakdown, uh, these inherent crisis contradictions within uh, within the capitalist system. That is is really where I try to focus. One way I've characterized it before, and um, I think actually in an interview I did with Paul Maddock in the uh, Brooklyn Rail for uh, the book I wrote a while ago that didn't wasn't related to this dissertation project. Uh, that in that interview I characterized as basically if you think about like a river flowing. You know, it flows downhill. It flows from high altitude areas in out into the ocean eventually. If you think about that sort of a system, right, you can identify all these points where you have these cascade events within the river, these big waves or waterfalls where the river drops up down suddenly, right? You have all these waves on the river. You have uh, waterfalls on the river. You have these giant uh, you also have these giant long periods where it just kind of flows low and slow right across a, a big plain like the Mississippi. You have all of that within this river system, but underlying it fundamentally is still that high altitude to low altitude, high elevation, low elevation flow downward, right? So that's the kind of differences that we're talking about. Like you're going to have all these individual things and there may be ways to predict some degree of periodicity or understand that something is coming or something is happening, right? There's going to be a waterfall in just a second because we can read the signs in the environment. You know, we see that the foreground falls away as we're going down the river. Um, There's ways to do that, but that's kind of a different 
uh, thing than we are fundamentally doing when we're talking about like a communist theory of crisis, which is talking about the uh, that overall downward trend that's kind of built into the system as such. Uh, and then, you know, there's all kinds of weird things that can happen. Like I said, it can get really slow and flat for a long time. There's nothing written into that theory that says that you, that can't happen, right? So that's that's one of the, the distinctions that I really try to uh, pull out when I talk about uh, these Marxist or Marxist adjacent kind of appraisals of, of kind of crisis and crisis theory is trying to really emphasize that in order to, on the one hand, demolish a few of those kind of straw man portrayals of crisis theory in order to earnestly appraise it. And then on the other hand, to again, get at this idea of like what's really going on right now out there in the world. I mean, I, I, I love this. This is a great metaphor of the river flowing. And I think you're ex- also exactly right here where, you know, to, to quote a friend of the show, Riley Quinn, right? Prediction is a mugs game. Um, but everybody's obsessed with prediction. They want the forecast. They want to know when is the crisis going to hit? Give me, send me a calendar invite to when the crisis is going to hit. Um, so that, you know, I can make a lot of money on it is all, is almost always the, uh, the unsaid portion there. And, and we see people valorized and, and, uh, and, and held up as uh, on pedestals. Um, if they are able to predict a crisis because they got luckier, you know, this is the whole thing with the big short, right? Is, uh, you know, you had a, a handful of renegade Wall Street, you know, traders, um, as well as one you know, eccentric, weird guy, Christian Bell on the West Coast, right, who all saw this coming. But I mean, in reality, they were just observing a crisis that had already happened, not one that was going to soon happen, but one that was already unfolding. Um, And that's also a thing too. Crises, uh, you know, historically don't tend to happen as a big bust, Right there, that might be the big. There might be a big crisis moment that catches everybody's eye, but the crisis was always unfolding. And this gets to your very uh, apt point about understanding the structural tendencies, understanding the system as a whole. Is that crises are not a binary thing of one day at one one moment there's no crisis and the next moment suddenly there's crisis it's always this thing that's unfolding and building over time and then you hit a waterfall as in your analogy and suddenly it kind of goes off the cliff but but that was always it was always heading in that direction and i think this is something that is really powerful a powerful corrective for the people who do you know i think ed and i get it all the time too because we you know we we talk about we talk about these structural tendencies to crisis but we also are looking around you know in our day jobs at what's going on in the tech sector in the financial sector and being like there's obviously a crisis happening here right like there's obviously some like like a, a bubble is is just keeps blowing up bigger and bigger. I think Ed and I both get this from people who say, well, tell me when the crisis is, right? Like, tell me when the crisis is going to hit, what it's going to look like, uh, you know, give me a rundown of, 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 the, uh, uh, of the crisis. And we're like, that's not the point here, right? The point is that the crisis will hit. It's only a matter of when, not if. And uh, it will also hit because it's an inherent part of the kind of motion of capital um, is, is, is downward, um, as, I, as I think you, you really aptly laid out. Laid out. Laid out. Laid out. Laid out.
So a lot of this that we're talking about is the kind of communist theory of crisis. I, I think it would be really interesting to get into some of the specific mainstream theories of crisis that you lay out and some of their their avatars, if you will, um, their kind of representatives who you do these really interesting uh, deep readings um, of their of their work. Which I like. I kind of, I like this approach. It does feel very Marxist as well. Like you were talking about early in the show, how Marx wrote long tracts and letters and pamphlets and essays, just going really deep into specific people who he thought were idiots. <laughs> um, but reading every single thing that they'd ever written, giving these extremely long, detailed uh, summaries and syntheses and critiques of their work, like just really diving in deep. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in that methodology because you can really, you know, you can, you can contextualize it within kind of broader disciplinary thought or broader kind of um, currents of scholarship or intellectual debate. But there is also always something really uh, useful about just digging into the, the the nitty gritty concrete details of someone as a avatar or as a representative of this this kind of broader theory or this broader approach, and you do that with a with a few people uh, in in this first chapter. And you know we don't have to go super and in deep into them, but I would love to hear your kind of glossing over of of, of their work. Let's get to the first person here, who um, is Richard Koo. Tell us about Richard Koo and his his theory of crisis. Yeah, so Richard Koo is very interesting. Um, and as you said, there's several people I kind of engage with in this kind of capacity, but I would say that Richard Koo is the one that I engage with probably the, the most and for the longest. And there's two other people who are sort of subheadings under the section where I'm talking about Koo, and that's... Um, that's uh, Pettis and Klein. They wrote the book Trade Wars or Class Wars, and uh, they kind of engage with this this same uh, in the same kind of realm of theory, which is very broadly kind of classified as as balance sheet uh, economics or, or something along those lines. Ku um, himself is again a very kind of interesting thinker because he's mainly for a long time he's he's again one of these guys who's trained at just a regular uh, uh, out of a regular kind of academic. Economic sort of setting, and then he goes to work for these um, research institutes. Uh, he works for some pretty prominent research institutes, and the main one he's working for this particular research institute in in uh, Tokyo back in like the late eighties, early nineties, as the Japanese crisis is is building essentially. So he's on the ground floor of um, the Japanese crisis, and this uh, for people who don't know, there was a big. Uh, bust in Japanese. It appeared as a financial crisis in the uh, between basically the term between the 80s and the 90s. It really burst out in like 1990, and um, uh, and then it started to it had all these kind of after effects throughout the the 90s. But it's sort of a forgotten crisis in many uh, doc many documents that or histories of kind of the era of crisis. We think of the dot com bust, et cetera, et cetera. But this Japanese crisis. Uh, it was extremely significant. By the mid-90s, there was a lot of fear that it could actually, uh, it had been stretching on, that it could be plunging the world economy into a new depression. So he's on the on the ground floor of like this this whole thing happening. He's he's working. He's got direct lines, all these uh, direct lines, to all these major industrialists in uh, in Japan and financiers and big uh, investors across the board. He also is is uh, in communication with like big, um, uh, you know. People doing 
the government management side of, of the crisis. So like the equivalent of having uh, the phone number of the Federal Reserve, right? He also actually used to work for the Federal Reserve in the US, I believe. Um, so this is, again, that, that importance of those working economists. But he, um, so he has this really, really good window into what's going on. And he starts to put these things together where he's saying, well, look, when I'm talking to all these these people, these people in the actual position of making these investments, well, what are they telling me? What's the, what's the problem? And for a lot of them, the problem is essentially that there's this inversion point in their balance sheets. And the balance sheet in this corporate accounting sense is just you know your profits and your losses, essentially. But what happens when something like a real estate bubble uh, collapses is that if you are a firm that's highly leveraged in real estate, so you own a bunch of real estate assets, if the value of real estate starts to decline rapidly, then suddenly those assets, as they're calculated within your balance balance sheet and the returns that you're getting off of them and various kind of credit instruments and securitized mortgage things like this, basically your what's perceived as your sort of income, your natural income uh, that gets that generated from interest, um, all that stuff starts to go away. And then suddenly you have these losses and the losses get bigger and bigger, right? As this, this bubble uh, collapses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the interesting thing is that he's seeing this and he's saying, okay, well, there's this balance sheet crisis. What happens when there's a balance sheet crisis? All these firms then stop, uh, they basically stop trying to go out and invest in new things. And at first, he's not really saying like what that investment might be. He's just saying they're not going to invest in anything because they're going to go pay down their debt because that's the only way to maintain the health of their balance sheet kind of from their perspective. They have to pay down their debt. So there, he talks about this cycling between a period of when balance sheets are healthy and profits are coming in, right? And he says in that sort of a setting, all the traditional conventional macroeconomic tools, uh, they work essentially. The, the idea is that you, you can use classic monetarist style measures to manage those things. So you just, uh, if, if investment is kind of overheating and you're getting too much inflation, just drop down interest rates uh, or sorry, raise interest rates, and then that will slow down investment. And then if it starts to uh, slow and get a little sluggish, you drop interest rates, that'll stimulate investment. Those sort of key big Federal Reserve monetarist mechanisms. Um, and he says also in that sort of situation, these classic Keynesian public policy uh, fiscal stimulus is going to only trigger inflation and it's going to overcrowd the market. It's going to crowd out private investors. All of that, if you're familiar with economic orthodoxy, right, That's that should be very, very normal sounding. That's what the orthodoxy has been. But then he says, once this inflection point happens and you go all these balance sheets across the private economy begin to go negative, then the rules of the game change because when you have uh, the federal, the equivalent of the Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve itself, uh, when they try to respond to this by raising interest rates or by lowering interest rates, in this case, in this case, everything gets sluggish, so they lower interest rates, right? And it doesn't work. Like people don't still don't invest. And so he's saying, well, why don't people invest? And instead of these normal mainstream economists who, who went out and said, well, let's construct a really ornate macroeconomic model to try to figure out uh, exactly why people wouldn't invest in this situation. And then we can, you know, we can mathematically construct it in this way, et cetera, et cetera, in all this opaque fashion. Well, what do what does Richard Koo do? Well, he just like calls these people on the phone and he's basically asking them like, hey, why aren't you guys investing? And then they're like, dude, we're in like a fucking million yen, a thousand million yen of debt. And so obviously we're not going to buy new shit. 
we're going to pay down our debt, right? And then Ku is very good at doing that classic economist thing of like pretending like everything is kind of like a household. And he's so like, so he's like, of course, you go into credit card debt, and then you have to spend a few months paying down your debt, you know, from your wages, right? And he doesn't really get down to that, that more fundamental point of like, what are your wages? Like, where is that coming from, right? He's still in this economist kind of worldview. He also goes really hard into this um, very, very like macro scale stuff that he's trying to do, which is really interesting, because this is something that, like I said, a lot of economists don't do. But Ku starts to say, that he has discovered the general theory of, of crisis, right? And he goes back and he says, okay, look, this predicts the Japanese crisis. He becomes famous though, after he writes this book on the Japanese crisis and it comes out, I think in the early 2000s or so. Um, and that that introduces this idea of a, that what he calls a balance sheet recession. He starts to kind of circulate the book and he writes some more papers. And then he writes some papers saying that like the, the uh, US housing market uh, kind of risks this same thing happening. And then after it happens, he writes this paper that kind of accounts for it in these same terms. And it gets sent around um, just sort of under, like an under the table distribution of this paper. Uh, it gets very, very popular. And he, he kind of builds this kind of micro career off of the popularity of that paper. Um, and then he writes another book that he literally calls the holy grail of macroeconomics. And he re- releases that um, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, or he, he actually releases it right as the Great Recession is kind of happening, I, I think. I, I think it comes out in like 2008, 2009. So it's like right as it's happening. He releases like a second edition, I think sometime in 2009, that really summarizes uh, all of it. But he's like, that book is, he's clearly been working on it. So he's clearly had some of that like lucky foresight to see what's going on. Um, and so he gets a lot more attention for that. And then he, much later in like 2018, he re- releases this other book called uh, I think it's called the other half of macroeconomics, and it, it follows kind of a similar theme. Where, but then in that one, he incorporates some lar- even larger scale structural development theory stuff from the uh, from Arthur W. Lewis and the Lewis development model, and um, some things like that, which I can talk about later. But uh, the other interesting thing though about Ku is that, so like I said, he kind of goes really hard into this idea of doing like macro macro super philosophy of economics. I have discovered the holy grail. It accounts for crises and what causes them. Uh, and he also describes it in all this very mystical uh, language. And it, it's really funny because you see this again. If you've studied like the history of economics, you see this again and again. They get to a certain point and then it turns into like this really weird mystical stuff, like you said earlier, like animal spirits. And in this case, he actually says that he calls it uh, the yin-yang cycle of uh, economic growth and crisis. And he says that the economy can be in, in a in a yin phase or in a yang phase. And in you know one of the phases, in the yang phase, I always uh, kind of mix them up, but in the yang phase, it's, uh, it's growing and booming. And that's when the normal macroeconomic things work because profitability is fairly high and you can control things with uh, monetarist interest rate interventions. And then in the yin phase, you have the opposite. You have balance sheet recession where uh, companies are trying to pay down debt so they're not investing. They're not putting new money out into the economy. They're not hiring. They're not expanding. Um, and in that phase, you basically, the only thing that you can really do is, is direct fiscal stimulus and some other uh, trade balancey type uh, things that are a little bit complicated to get into right now. But that forms the basis for like the trade wars or class wars type argument that you have to like rebalance trade in the global economy, um, which is kind of a weird, it, it sort of falls into that Piketty trap of like, sure, I guess if you could just like, push the scales as you please on all the countries it could maybe work like you if you could tax all of the global rich like inequality would maybe have like you'd be able to maybe do something with it but like it presumes 
you know, it presumes the solution in posing the problem. It presumes that you have like the power to make that sort of a solution at the scale and you don't. But Ku is, is very interesting because he really does try to give this general theory of crises in a way that's much more uh, expansive than, than uh, other people. And the other, the other person um, who's maybe equally expansive is, is Robert Gordon. Yeah, let, we'll get into Robert Gordon. I think the, the stuff around Ku, one thing I did want to say real quick as well is that you have this extended metaphor. I'll also say for, for, for listeners, uh, Phil's dissertation is extremely well written, which is also its own rarity. Um, it's a, it's an actual joy to read and it's very clear. And you have this very interesting extended metaphor throughout this chapter about the kind of, uh, the, the economic cosmology. Um, and you, you lay out this kind of analogy between the like Copernican revolution around like geocentrism and heliocentrism. Um, and, but then also, you know, talking about the kind of cosmology of mainstream economics and the astrology of supply and demand, as you put it. And I, I always think about this meme uh, or, or this tweet I saw um, that, that was like, uh, economics is astrology for bros, you know? And and it's, it's funny to like read some of these very, very serious economists like Richard Koo, who at some point in their theorizing reach a dead end and have to do uh, a, re a recourse to mysticism. They have to do some hand-waving and be like, all right, well, I've, I've, I've reached the end of my economics the uh, uh, theorization ability. Um, and so what comes next is a David Blaine magic <laughs> trick, right? Like, uh, and, and that happens again and again. And you see these very weird justifications. I, I also think about like Larry Summers, uh, again, you know, um, uh, 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 blessings upon his name. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I always think, I also think about Larry Summers like last year or like in 2020 with the COVID stimulus coming out really hard being like, this is going to overheat the economy. This is going to overheat the economy. You can't give people a, a, a check full of money or a check with money because it's going to, it's like, what does that mean? It's going to overheat the economy. They don't have any like real explanation for that. It's also the way that Koo talks about, um, you know, as you put it, the non-explanation of private sector vigor, right? That like there's a vigor in the economy. I think it's just very telling on one hand, how little that these econ mainstream uh, economics has developed its ability to theorize crisis um, and theorize the causes and, and symptoms of crises um, or theorize the things that they fear the most, like inflation. Uh, and uh, they, like their complete inability or inexperience with doing it leads them to relying upon yin and yang, uh, you know, animal spirits, uh, vigor, like all of these like mystical uh, uh, reading the tea leaves kind of explanations of how the economy works. It's a very interesting and I think uh, not remarked upon enough uh, core failing of a discipline that takes the economy as its laboratory um, and has been very successful uh, in terms of grabbing um, political power uh, through its seemingly ability to um, model, predict, uh, understand, and intervene into this thing that ultimately uh, it, ha it doesn't understand at all. Yeah, so there, there's a 
bunch of different kind of angles to get in with, with that. Um, but there's a couple of things I think are, are a little bit extra um, interesting for like where, where this approach of talking about as, as a cosmological sort of comes from. And one of those angles is just um, there's this particular, there's a really good book, which is actually a, um, it's like a, the book version of Paul Maddock uh, Jr.'s doctoral dissertation. And it is all about kind of comparing this kind of Marxist methodology and understanding of economics with this anthropological understanding of like the study of witchcraft in a particular society. I can't remember the top, it off the top of my head. Uh, you can probably look it up and uh, see it. It's, it's uh, social knowledge. Yeah, social knowledge, I think, is what the book is called. Anyways, the, the point is just that it's a really good book for fleshing out this idea that I, I kind of touch on in, in the dissertation. And it, it talks about basically how there's a lot of things that you can make socially consistent, right, with a particular cause, with a particular cosmology within a society. And it can seem to explain a lot of things on a matter of fact way. But when you really dig into scientifically what the mechanism, the causal mechanism it's proposing is, it's either inaccessible, right, because it's supernatural, or it just kind of goes away in this kind of magic disappearing act. Uh, type way. And so he basically points out that the way that economics really functions or political economy used to function, right? The way that economics really functions in telling us things about our world is less similar to the way that like nor like a lot of sciences function. There's a couple caveats on that statement, but like it's, it's less similar to the way that a lot of normal sciences at least attempt to function. And it's more similar to the complex defense of a certain supernatural cosmological view of the world. Like you said, there's just these invocations of like, well, that'll over overheat the economy. And you're just like, well, why? Like, you know, but then there's no explanation mm-hmm. for that in the in these particular conditions, and a lot of people sort of point that out. Um, but then the other thing is just where does this? So I use this extended metaphor of comparing like heliocentric and geocentric uh, models in the Copernican Revolution, and talking about you know if we think about traditional economics and historically political economy, if we kind of think about these as something equivalent to like a geocentric understanding of the world. Um, then we can understand the the critique of political economy as the attempt to kind of not necessarily just pose like a counter model, but it's also kind of an assault on the cosmological principles, right, of the society that underpins it. It's also like a social revolution. And that part is inherent in it because if we all remember, uh, the Copernican revolution also is like a social event, right? The reason that these geocentrist models were so important is because they were institutionally backed by the reigning uh, figures that benefited from a certain cosmological view of the world, right? It was like the church preventing some of these early observations from coming to light um, and funding the opposite sort of theory uh, in in the early uh, uh, astronomical observations. And the interesting thing, so where does this this metaphor that I use actually come from? It comes, it's just a teaching tool that I would use. I used to teach when I was, when I was, was a grad student, I would work as a, a, a TA like, or, or uh, like a PhD instructor Um for, for many, many years. And so I would frequently get, because I was also like one of the only people left doing like economic geography, a lot of geography departments like really don't do that that much anymore. Um, I also got kind of left with teaching all the quant classes. Uh, so I would teach all the mapping uh, classes and the coding classes and the stats classes, spatial analysis, that sort of thing. Um, and in those classes, you get a lot of time experimenting with what kind of works for explaining some of these these 
broader concepts about what like what numbers are and you're trying to do with them when you're doing like statistics or, or any kind of mapping, right? Like, what are you really doing? Um, and one of the teaching tools that I started to use a lot of was this thing that you'll see used kind of across statistics uh, pedagogy. And it is this really interesting point about geocentric models. So the geocentric models, they reach this point toward the right before the real Copernican revolution takes off. And it's like heliocentric models become the acknowledged sort of thing. Um, they reach this point where they they're extremely accurate. So geocentric models, um, they become extremely, extremely accurate. Tycho Brahe has this whole geocentric model that still today in like the under the hood coding of some orbital mechanics, they will still use it because it's mathematically easier. Uh, and it's, and it's even more accurate than a lot of, uh, uh, heliocentric models are because, uh, it, it, it's not about, it's not about, the actual underlying kind of philosophy about it. It's just like in terms of predictive power and the, in terms of, of kind of following out the mathematical relationships, it, it just works really well and it has this great accuracy to it. And it's this point that statisticians use to basically say, look, just emphasize and hammer it into the head of, of students and readers everywhere. Like we are dealing with models we are not dealing with the actual phenomenon. You have to have a scientific theory behind your statistical model. You have to have a scientific theory and you have to also actually have a causal model behind your statistical model, but you have to have a scientific theory. You have to have a causal model, which is different than the statistical model. And that causal model has to be justified by the prevailing knowledge within the scientific field, right? And just by regular rhetorical uh, good standards of, of, you know, argumentation and thinking. So, those things are all kind of disconnected. So I, I use that that uh, example basically drawn from this teaching experience of just explaining like statistics and modeling and, and whatnot. But it actually makes a very good example of, of what a lot of these uh, uh, economic theories sort of do. They, they Sometimes they craft very, very uh, well-attuned geocentric models, right? And they can work very well for certain things. And there are reasons that some of these things have become orthodoxy, often because they were successful in reigning in a particular crisis at some point. And so there's, there's reasons that these things take on that sort of effect, um, but then they also begin to lose it over time. Like you can sort of imagine what would happen if um, we kept a geocentric model, right? Until we actually started shooting stuff into space, <laughs> And then we get up there and we're like, wait a minute, like this doesn't make sense anymore, right? And that's sort of how a lot of these economic theories work is that they, they actually seem to account for a lot of stuff until everything collapses out from under you. And then they account for nothing because none of this was supposed to be able to happen. It's sort of like you get up into space, right? And you've got this geocentric model, the, the Tycho Brahe geocentric model version five or whatever. And then you're looking at it and you're looking out the little window as the first cosmonaut uh, in space, because obviously in this counter example, the USSR is still the first, uh, you know, people to get into space. And then you say, well, shit, it, that is clearly circling around this other thing. Like this is, the earth is clearly, you know, not what everything is circling around. That's sort of uh, where those, those examples come from is those, those two sort of sources. Yeah, and I, I love that that analogy as well because it really draws a, a clear line between um, the maintenance of a model and of a of a school of thought by and for um, the prevailing 
kind of power in society, the, the powerful institutions. So, I mean, this is something we cannot ever, uh, we, we, we should not ever forget is that, um, mainstream economics and, and, and you make a point as well that, you know, that makes, while we call it like heterodox economics, it actually makes no sense because uh, it, Marxist economics makes no sense. Marxism is itself a critique of political economy. Um, and we've just kind of over time uh, made that into a shorthand of it is political economy. And that is now essentially the, the fact is that if you're doing political economy, that usually means you're doing Marxist uh, critique of political economy but that's language but at any rate the the important thing here is is that um these main these models in mainstream economics um the reason why they you know they they persist uh and prevail until that moment where they cannot just fizz, like simply cannot do it any longer um is because there's a lot that goes into the maintenance of them um by and for the state apparatus in large part. I mean, it's also a very weird coincidence that, you know, uh, whether it's, 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 uh, Richard Koo or as we'll get into with Robert Gordon or we even see with, um, with MMT, with modern monetary, uh, theory that, you know, but especially with, with like Koo and Gordon where, you know, they'll lay out these theories of crisis, but then at the end of the day, that there's nothing that can be done to solve them or the only things that can be done are are technocratic tweaking of interest rates uh of the money supply or in the case of um like Koo and gordon uh and Koo in particular uh it's another mystical notion of innovation well the solution here is to do innovation the solution here is for um and if you're if you're particularly keynesian about it then you'll say the state should be uh investing in r&d usually by giving corporations uh you know either giving them money and subsidies or giving them you know as we've talked about on tmk before uh zerp with a zero interest rate problem essentially just free money uh, for corporations or uh and or funneled through the military right uh, uh like that that's what ku explicitly recommends after laying out this holy grail of macroeconomics this this theory of cri of general a general theory of crisis his solution is uh i don't know uh, uh give more money to the military for r&d so we can create innovation which will then get us out of uh crisis <laughs> Innovation just becomes this other uh, mystical uh, hand-waving notion, and we see this in a different, but 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 still quite similar way with with someone like Robert Gordon, um, who uh, is an academic economist. Um, as you'll, as you can lay out here, but you know he's an academic economist, and he is um, more explicitly interested in trying to understand. Uh, the role of technology and technical capabilities um, within um, economic activity and production and manufacturing and these kinds of things. Um, so maybe lead us a little bit through Robert Gordon and then we can kind of 
start wrapping up the episode by talking about, um, and I want to leave time for this because I think you have a really interesting um, explanation um, and critique of MMT or modern monetary theory. And finally, thank God somebody can explain what MMT is. Um, but before then, let's get to uh, tell us a bit about Robert Gordon. Yeah. So Robert Gordon is probably the most kind of traditional academic economist that I talk about in, in the dissertation or that I talk about at length in the dissertation. And he is this, this whole uh, series of economists who trained kind of um, what was there was this 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 guy solo who did uh, a basically formulated all the standard ways of doing like growth accounting. So like change in, in growth, GDP growth rates, et, et cetera, et cetera. And uh Gordon was one of his his students, and there's a couple other people I talk about uh, in the later, like heterodox sections, who are also his students or or affiliated in those kind of sort of circles. And so these were people who really place a lot of emphasis on looking, uh, trying to track change in the economy over time. And so change in the economy over time uses particular uh, measures, obviously uh, from like these particular econometric uh, tools, which we're all pretty familiar with in this general sense, but the things like GDP, you know, output measurements, productivity measurements, and then employment growth. And there's all these little like accounting identities that exist between those terms. So the growth of output, growth of employment, growth of, of uh, productivity, these all have these kind of mathematical relationships to one another. They can more or less be demonstrated. Um, the, and then there's this other there's this other thing that always pops up in those where there's uh, a growth that exceeds kind of the inputs and that, that growth, that, um, that additional weird little extra bit of, of growth rate that you get pumped into uh, economies over time is it's, it's basically just a residual from this mathematical relationship, but it's um, just given this name of total factor productivity. And it's kind of a mystical category in its own right. It's very interesting um, to see how people understand it. And Gordon, his main work, um, is this this thing called the this large large book called the Rise and Fall of American Growth, and it talks about the American economy essentially from the Civil War on through the 1970s to the present, more or less. But really, he's talking about this period of rapid growth that exists from like the late 19th century until about the 1970s, uh, and he uses a lot of these metrics to show why this period was so, uh, somewhat unique compared to other periods in the in U.S. economic history and world economic history. It's very U.S. focused, but a lot of the observations apply. You could e easily see it being done for like the U.K. or even uh, China today. And there are a lot of writings about chi Chinese, like the nature of Chinese total factor productivity or TFP uh, uh, growth rates and changes and, and whatnot. The basic core of what he's arguing, it's more complicated than this, obviously, but the basic core of what he's arguing is that there was this big boom period where you saw a lot of growth happening in output. That output growth led to growth in employment. And especially you saw this big boom from that little residual relationship called total factor productivity. And again, if you kind of dig into, well, what does he mean by total factor productivity? All of these economists can't they don't really explain very well what it is. They say, well, it could be, you know, just kind of the orientation or the, the way that people are making use of uh, all the, you know, labor and factories and the layout of them. And the and then it also includes this mystical innovation factor. And they'll, they'll kind of talk about it in all these different weird mystical ways. Essentially what it is, is just this mathematical remainder that comes after you calculate all the inputs of growth. And there's this excess thing on the, on the side. So he's saying, especially if you look at TFP growth, there's this period where it really spikes 
and then it declines. Uh, and it, it's lower before that as well. It's like lower before uh, the, the late 19th century. And then it's lower after about like the 1970s. So there's maybe like this 100-ish year period where it's really a robust. All of these things are growing very robustly. And then there's it's even higher in this particular period from like the 30s through uh, – Kind of the twenties through the through the thirties, if I remember correctly. But there's like this per- period, kind of right in the middle of the twentieth century, where it's very high. And it's notably, it's actually before where most people identify like the big post-war boom, right? He's saying it happened actually before that. Um, there's a lot of things that happened before that, and then they all get kind of rolled out during the war, and it kind of takes complete form during the war. So, what are these things that are happening that he's talking about in like the twenties? Well, Gordon is interesting because he's very much this conventional academic economist, and so for for them, it, it's very much just about like society doesn't really enter into the picture. There's not really a social theory there. It's all about. Uh, essentially just technical relationships and how much can you produce with certain things, right? And they also understand it as the economy is ultimately serving consumer demand, right? Which is different than how Marx understands the the fundamental laws uh, governing the system. Uh, but this is important to understand that this is what they're thinking. So they're thinking basically the economy is this machine for meeting people's demands. And in order to do that, the machine is like making stuff out of other stuff. And there's this technical uh, relationship that uh, that gives us an idea of like how much stuff you can make with other stuff. That's the basic, like the broadest, most abstract version of like how they're kind of thinking about this. So Gordon is saying, well, what are the specific ways, specific technical methods that are being rolled out to, to do that in that machine, that, that machine for making more stuff? How is it making more stuff? And how does it get so much better at making more stuff at a faster and faster rate in this time period? And so he basically settles on these, um, this, these clusters of uh, inventions, of technological inventions, right? And he basically says, he frequently refers to them as essentially miraculous. He, he constantly is using these terms like techn- technological miracles. They're um, treated like this uh, in culturally at the time. You know, you see it in all these accounts of like the changes that these technologies are, are uh, producing in everyday life. And What's really going on, right, is he's identified these these key technological changes. He traces it through a few different sources, but one especially is like the rate of uh, patents and then the rollout of particular patented technologies in industrial processes. Uh, So there's this thing that happens like in the 1920s. There's actually a lot of... technical innovation in the 1920s and there's a lot of invention going on and new technologies are being rolled out and he actually even traces it before then he says you know from the 20s uh, earlier in the in the 1910s and the 1900s and even in the 1890s there's all these inventions that are coming out but a lot of them aren't being rolled out in industrial scales because well he doesn't really say this part but because uh for some reason for some magical reason companies don't want to invest that much in production right, right at this time. Like there's not a big push to invest in, in production or to change it in these particular ways. And it's kind of limited and hemmed in. And instead there's this financialization thing going on. Um, you know, at the time, this is the, the, the years of like Lenin and Bucher and, and um, Hilferding talking about financial capital and, and imperialism, right? Gordon is not talking about that explicitly, but that's the context that he's talking about. He's saying, look, there's some limit that's happening to the rollout of these technologies at an industrial scale. So then 
the depression happens. And then the combination of depression and then war enables the conditions to, uh, to somehow, he doesn't really explain how, but he basically, he basically defers to just the war being what happens. And that because of the war, the government steps in and the government is able to, first of all, a force through industrial production because they start to set all these quotas and they effectively nationalize a bunch of industries, even though they're nominally not nationalized, uh, all, all this stuff, right? Um, and they set all these price controls, et cetera, et cetera. And so then the government actually forces through uh, installation of a bunch of new equipment in these industrial facilities. And then after the war, there's a kind of a continuing uh, follow-on uh, boom after a period of, of, of collapse that happens right after the war. And then in that context, there's uh, further expansions of productive activity because he doesn't mention this part, but this is a big part for Palmatic uh, Senior in accounting for crises because you blew up all of Europe, right? And so then you go and there's like those factories don't exist anymore. So the ones that are built have a new technological basis at the more modern level of, of technical capacity, right? So you've destroyed a bunch of industrial capacity and then it gets written off the books because it was a war. And then you are able to rebuild it. And then sets the whole Marshall plan and us financing of post-war reconstruction in, uh, in uh, Japan and the Pacific as well. Um, the point is just that Gordon is looking at all this stuff and he's really focusing on those little technical innovations. And what he's theorized is from all this stuff happening. Um, I gave some spoilers in there from these, these, communist thinkers, right? But Gordon isn't really talking about that stuff. He's not really saying, well, you know, the war destroyed all this capacity and it was good for business after the war. Um, he, you know, maybe mentions some things that are kind of like that, but he's really focusing on the rollout of these technologies in this very pragmatic way. And he's basically saying, look, this is this period from like the 20s through to the maybe early 60s. You have this mass rollout of like things that we all take for granted now, like electrification, Right. And he's saying like there's these if you look at a lot of the U.S. in like 1900, it wasn't electrified and then it really electrified very slowly. Right. And then the Depression happens and there's some really big attempts to push out electrification like uh, uh, I'm in Washington state. And if you look at eastern Washington, all of the big hydro and power uh, engineering feats of these these big dams and the electrification of eastern Washington and the damming of, of things, right? That happened kind of in the context of depression and then war. Um, and that was, those were areas where like you had these massive like swaths of agricultural land that A, couldn't irrigate themselves very, way, very well. And then B, had like essentially no electricity for farmers living on them. And then when those things happen, it expands the productive capacity of these farms enormously, just enormously because they can use electricity to, to draw water from the Columbia to irrigate all these east, west, eastern Washington uh, fields, right? And, and all these apple orchards. Um, so all those sort of things are what he's pointing to is like electrification. You have household appliances as well because you have electrification. Now you can have household appliances. Uh, you have machine tools industry. The machine tools industry like revolutionizes industrial production, changing it out of craft production and enabling mass industrial scale production at a completely new scale. Um, there's all these little technological things that he's pointing to. And then he says, yeah, there's another little boom after the war and like aeronautics and some other things, um, automotives, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of that was really just uh, implementing at industrial scales these inventions that had actually been patented in like the 1920s or earlier. So even like big auto technology and stuff, like we associate it with the 1950s, 60s, et cetera, et cetera. But all that shit was patented like 
way, way before, like half a century earlier, a lot of the times. Uh, and he's pointing those sort of things out. He's saying there really weren't that many new inventions being fed in. It was just like the rollout of a backlog of old inventions because there wasn't an impetus to, to put them into play. What was that impetus missing? Well, he doesn't really account for it. These other thinkers kind of do. But uh, just to kind of conclude about Gordon, he essentially, I characterize him in the dissertation as essentially uh, like a technological Malthusian. And so the, whereas Malthus uh, Malthus is, is actually a little bit more of a multidimensional e- economic thinker. If you look at the actual economic history writings about him and Marx's engagement with him, it's much more interesting than this. But his characterization, at least now, right, is, is that he has this theory that these crises are coming from like overpopulation. It's just like this very clear material limit of population gets too big, but food can't be like more like enough food can't be grown to keep up with population because one is arithmetic and one is geometric in their growth patterns. Um, et cetera. So all this turns out to be wrong uh, as well, but he is basically making this very, this argument for this hard material constraint that's built into in Malthus's case, kind of like uh, agronomy and, and population demographics. Right. Um, for, for uh, Gordon, what he's saying is, is very, very similar, but he's not saying it about population. He's saying it about like technology. He's saying there's these inherent limits in technology. And he says, we basically like used up all the miraculous inventions. Like humans figured out most of the, the smart shit and now we don't have any left. It's, it's kind of uh, a very short version of what, what he's really saying. He's saying, you know, there is a, uh, we've kind of, used up that backlog. There's not a lot of these life-changing, miraculous inventions left. Um, the evidence for ones that people predict is very, very thin. And in this case, um, he's you know in the exact same kind of line of thinking as, as Jason Smith and Aaron Beninev and the people that you know, we're more familiar with. I'm talking about like the the way that automation gets talked about and the mythic aspects of, of, you know, AI and machine learning and their effects on production, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, he also talks about um, nuclear fusion and some of these other technologies that people have pointed to. And he just says, look, technologically, they're nowhere near like where they would need to be for them to actually be rolled out. They aren't even at this stage where they're like a, a functionable, patentable thing. And then the evidence is that it takes like decades after for that to kick in. So he kind of vaguely says, Maybe in the future we'll, we can have something. Maybe in the future some technologies will come back. Um, but he's really pretty pessimistic about it. And like you said, their whole their whole kind of pattern of of, of writing is to present these like huge intractable problems and these vast theories of like these these in Gordon's case especially like basically like civilization scale crises that are going to face the human species. And then they essentially turn around and they're like, well, what can we do? Uh, I don't know. Like, why don't we try a little bit more government stimulus? Uh, we should invest in education. Like, that's a constant thing. <laughs> they, they all turn to this. And this is definitely a, a function of their class position. We can go right back to old school, like vulgar determinist Marxism here and say that they say this because of their class position. They turn to school board politics, like like PTA style politics. Mm. And they say, we just need good schools. Like they all say it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we know, first of all, anyone in America knows what you're really saying when you're saying that, right? And then second, like, is that really, even if like we actually had good schools, I don't see how that solves any of this, you know? 
Now you were talking earlier about the the hydroelectric energy in in uh, eastern Washington and how uh, there was a period of time how that uh, you know the electricity was made uh, unaccessible to the people who the land it lived on are, are nearby the farmers nearby. There's a there's a town in, in central Washington called Quincy that there for a period of time was known as like Big Tech, like Washington's Big Tech server farm. There's community. There was people in the community that were complaining that they weren't getting stable electricity because these server farms that were nearby were just taking all this up. Uh, I never really followed up on what actually happened with all that, but it it kind of reminded me of that. And then you were talking about in the sense of like people always want to resolve to like you know school board politics and say uh, you know that the education's got to be done better. I mean, I, I I was in high school in the '90s and. You know, leading into like the whole push to teach people computer science or things like computer uh, adjacent, like tech technologies, computer adjacent. They were the schools I went to. They were uh, very apprehensive about doing that. They wanted to kind of push most of the students, specifically in Mississippi, into vocational or some type of like manufacturing type things. And I'm and I'm curious if uh, if you you know through your research and through your reading, if you've noticed there was a uh, big educational pushes into like forcing students uh, into not necessarily careers that they wanted, but things that like society seemed like, you know, we need people doing this stuff. I don't think that seems like it's an, uh, an American thing, but I felt like that there was a period of time where that was an emphasis. I mean, the server farms thing is very interesting because it does go back to all this infrastructure that was rolled out in, again, like depression, war, and then immediate post-war period. And we really take it for granted, but that's why there's cheap electricity in those uh, locations in eastern Washington, along like the Columbia Gorge area. There's a ton of servers out there. I mean, it's a huge, like when you talk about the material infrastructure of the internet, the actual, you know, where the tubes are, that's basically where a lot of them are. Um, if you go out there, you can see those those uh, those facilities. They use a ton of electricity, but the electricity is cheap because of all this this large scale, um, uh, basically dams and uh, and electrical infrastructure that was rolled out in this kind of period that Gordon was talking about. Um, in terms of the uh, some of the vocational stuff, yeah, it's 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 also global in, in scope. I talk a lot in the dissertation and then in forthcoming stuff and in my research more generally. I talk a lot about. Um, up and coming kind of industrial areas and what happened, what's been happening in, in China in terms of like territorial industrial development. Um, and this, this turn to kind of vocational education, that's been very big and that underpinned actually a lot of why China became a site for the type of industrial production that it uh, was is because the socialist era education system was very good at, at producing uh, engineers and especially like low level uh, engineers, the kind of people who uh, are involved a lot more involved in like manufacturing production in a, a bunch of industries. Um, and you don't, it's not coincidental that this stuff has been happening in the U S in the context of um, this very interesting and somewhat limited, but, but it, it's more limited than it's often portrayed as, but it, it is significant uh, reshoring of some degree of industrial production, especially in the southern states. So in the in the south and the southeast. So for other things, I, I kind of study some of the those industrial trends in the US. I wrote about it a bit in my uh, book, Hinterland. And then I, I I'm, I'm also just doing general research for for work and for uh, 
for my own research uh, a little bit about re- uh, kind of reindustrialization waves within the U.S. and how is it happening? Where is it happening? And then what's the actual pattern? Because it's not really employing that many people, uh, but there's a big shift to like institutionally reformat a lot of these states in order to attract back manufacturing employment. And the South leads the U.S. in that, and then demographically it kind of supports it because you have a lot of population flow to the U.S. uh, South as well. But there's a big institutional push to basically facilitate the construction of these industrial territories, which has to do with big uh, structural development trends in the global economy. That's kind of actually where coup goes at the end of his, uh, at his, his later book, The Other Half of Macroeconomics. He tries to integrate it into this vast theory of structural change in, in economies in general, like throughout human history as well. And yeah, that's kind of where I enter in on some of the, that kind of final, um, final stuff is drawn more from like heterodox realms. Moving us towards towards the end, but I did also want to say very. I mean, Gordon's work is very interesting, and in large part because his conclusions are so pessimistic, right? That that on one hand it is very much you know this kind of Malthusian right that that uh, civilization has reached um, some kind of inherent technological limit. In a lot of ways, it seems like Gordon's work is all completely based on trying to explain the solo paradox, right? And for people who don't know, right, his his uh, teacher and uh, mentor, you know, uh, Robert Solo, uh, who also is another of these uh, Nobel Prize winning economists, um, but, you know, very famously said in the late 80s that the computer age was everywhere except for the productivity statistics. And this is the solo paradox where, you know, suddenly we see the you know computers changing our lives in every single way. But productivity is stagnant, if not declining, even with the entry of um, the computer revolution. Uh, and, 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 and so it seems like Gordon's work is really trying to focus on explaining this paradox um, of his mentor by essentially saying, yeah, that's because we've reached a limit. Uh, you know, there, there's still new technology being built. Um, obviously, you know, we see new iPhones come out every other year, right? That's technology. History has not stopped uh, for the device, but uh, its its actual impacts uh, economically are, um, are, are are nowhere to be found. If anything, um, I think as as you you don't argue this, but uh, uh, or, or and, and Gordon doesn't argue this, but um, I think we would, I would argue that uh, one of the reasons why we see technology companies becoming the biggest um, corporations ever to exist in the world is not because of like capabilities for manufacturing and production, but new capabilities for um, rent extraction and monopolization, right? Which is inherently uh, an unproductive um, activity in the economy in the sense that it's not producing new stuff. It's also interesting that Robert Gordon's um, argument and conclusions here are ones that, while they do seem kind of, you know, uh, somewhat radical in terms of mainstream economics, they're also ones that you see other um, economists and economic adjacent people following along with, I think, as well about 
uh, Tyler Cowen, very famous George Mason University economist, you know, uh, kind of Austrian neoclassical um, guy, but you know, wrote wrote this uh, pamphlet um, in 2011 called "The Great Stagnation: How America Ate All the Low Hanging Fruit of Modern History, Got Sick, and Will Eventually Feel Better." Um, we're also thinking about like Peter Till, you know, uh, decrying that you know we were promised uh, flying cars and all we got were 180 characters, right? Um, so you see these people like Till and Cowan echoing some regards Gordon's Gordon's argument about how like we seem to have eaten all the low-hanging fruit we seem to have reached some kind of limit but I think where they differ is that um, Cowan and Till say that this is just a this is just a a a momentary lapse we'll get to the uh, to the higher fruit you know all we have to do is invest more work harder uh get you know get better degrees and more education and then we'll get there whereas i think robert gordon is pretty stalwart in his pessimism of being like nah this is it <laughs> the most we can do is kind of ameliorate the the stagnation but stagnation is is here to stay is seems to be Gordon's conclusions. And and this is all as a way uh, to, you know, we, we talk about the kind of anemic conclusions and normative interventions and recommendations of mainstream economics um, with Kuh and Gordon being somewhat, you know, being avatars of it uh, for how to approach crisis. And now we are left with the third kind of school of thought that you talk about to end this the in this chapter and we'll end the episode on it uh is modern monetary theory which is a you know pretty uh new at least new in terms of its celebrity it's kind of heyday moment right now um but it distinguishes itself by having a normative uh intervention policy based um, kind of momentum behind it. It has very solid things that they say, this is what we need to do and we need to do this and we need to do that. And it goes way beyond adjusting interest rates or, or quanti- or doing quantitative easing, um, or, uh, you know, at the most radical end, giving the military more money, um, to spend on R and D. Uh, MMT goes way beyond that. Um, you know, for, for, uh, listeners, you might be familiar with MMT through its meme status as, you know, money printer go burr, right? Like that, that's, that's MMT right there. That's kind of the meme, you know, explanation of MMT is that it's, it's turning on the money printer. You know, there's obviously more to that, although maybe not a whole lot more, um, in terms of its, its theory. But uh, I, I want to hand it over to, to you, Phil, because one hand, I think you laid out one of the clearest explanations of what MMT is that I've seen, while at the same time also laying out a, a, a very, um, you know, in a very uh, Marxian way, ruthless criticism uh, of of MMT um, in a way I've never seen before and found to be really quite interesting. And I think people may disagree, but I think it's a powerful argument, one that kind of pulls the rug out a bit from underneath MMT. So maybe uh, for sake of time, you know, uh, mirroring the, 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 the somewhat relative brevity of this section compared to Koo and Gordon, could you just kind of quickly walk us through what MMT is and kind of leave us with why uh, MMT is maybe not 
the uh, the panacea, the Keynesian panacea um, that uh, that I think a lot of people on the left, um, but not just on the left, as you outlined, kind of think that it that it is. Yeah, I guess I could start with like a like a very simple one or two sentence summary of, of that whole whole bit is basically just that uh, MMT is like this popular thing right now. It advocates, as you say, kind of uh, pretty lax, like fiscal intervention, open fiscal intervention um, on the part of a state if the state has control over its sovereign uh, currency. Um, but basically, you can just think of it as this thing that advocates a lot of fiscal intervention. But when you really dig down into what it's saying, it's very amorphous and difficult to figure out what exactly it's saying and how it differs from other theories. When you dig all the way down, then you see them um, have to make appeals to this thing that they call kind of the real economy, the real productive capacity of an economy. And so once you really get down to that level, the problem with a lot of the MMT stuff is that they still acknowledge that there's these some sort of real productive constraints, at which point uh, either inflation kicks in or which you just kind of can't quite do some of the things that they sort of sell in the, the marketing material for MMT. Uh, and that's, the, that's the, the really high level overview of what the structure of that chapter basically goes through. The reason that I'm looking at it, it's a little bit different than the other people because its theory is a lot weaker. Um, and I don't think there's any ambiguity about that. I think it was actually, we were talking about Larry Summers earlier. I think it was Larry Summers who just um, tweeted something or something that was basically about how he was like, yeah, like the New York Times should should print like other diverging economic theories. They should print like Marxist and stuff, but they absolutely shouldn't print this MMT shit. Like that was essentially his argument. <laughs> it was funny because he's like on the side of the Marxists in this, uh, in this, the idea is that when you really dig into it at a serious theoretical level, it doesn't have much substance. It's this very kind of soft skin, which once you pierce through it, you get to like the hard bone underneath, which seems to be just pretty con either conventional economics or some sort of post-Keynesian thing. Um, that, that's the core of it. But the why do I address it then if it seems a lot more insubstantial? It's definitely a lot more insubstantial than Ku, who gives this very expansive and, and tries to be very comprehensive in the way he uh, writes the theory out. The reason is it's popular, right? It, it, again, talking about working economists, this is people who've often worked for the Federal Reserve or worked for Federal Reserve kind of adjacent um, uh, bureaucracy, right? They know kind of how it actually works. And that's a huge point of focus for them. So Stephanie Kelton, who wrote the deficit myth, uh, and is probably the best known, most popular MMT thinker today, uh, because of that book, you know, she talks about the fact that just like working in the in in the innards of that sort of bureaucracy, you just very clearly see that what they're doing and what they're doing is essentially kind of generating these the this money out of nowhere. They're printing the money on the, the money printing machine, right? But the money printing machine nowadays is just a little electronic ledger at the Federal Reserve or the, tre the Treasury. It's an Excel yeah, spreadsheet. In this case, it's the Treasury. And so they've worked at the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And so they're these working people who really understand the actual nitty gritty of economic bureaucracy. And so they're making this argument from the standpoint of economic bureaucracy, kind of saying, like, why don't we just like liberate that bureaucracy and allow it to allow it to really just generate all this um, money value back into the real economy. But when you really dig into it, they all bring up, they all say, like, look, we know inflation is a problem because the, the monetarists all say, well, that's just going to cause inflation. And the MMT people say, no, 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 no. We know inflation is a problem. But what we're saying is that there's this huge slack that exists between the current uh, fiscal stimulus level and the current level of demand and the point at which inflation kicks in. 
And then today, even though inflation is increasing, a lot of them will point out the fact, and this is basically true, that the inflation that we see is not being led by high wages and, and things like that. Uh, it's not being led by too much fiscal stimulus. It's mostly uh, the supply side inflation of, of bottleneck shocks and very similar in some ways to what was happening after like World War II and these other big, big supply shocks. So what they'll, they'll say, they'll point to all those things and they'll say, look, that's why, that's what we're saying. We're not saying that inflation doesn't exist. But then if you push them on it, right, you get to this idea like, wait, what are these real productive capacities that determine when inflation kicks in? And then it gets really interesting because they say, well, okay, look, there's a bunch of things that you have to have for this MMT stuff to work. First of all, you have to have a sovereign currency. And that's an interesting point because a lot of places don't, A, just don't have sovereign currencies like most of like former colonial West Africa, right? They just changed the name of the currency, but it used to literally just be called like the West African franc. Like if you could have a more colonial currency, like that's, <laughs> it's just so on the sleeve, right? Um, and then others are maybe now sovereign currencies, but they're enmeshed in this global currency market. So they really don't address some of the questions of, okay, but what happens to the values of other currencies relative to this currency when you start to do this stuff? And so that goes into some of the stuff we didn't talk about in here, but I talk about in the in the chapter, in the early part of the chapter with Richard Koo and the trade balance um, uh, people, the uh, Pettis and Klein, they uh, talk a lot about relative kind of currency values and relative interest rates and the, the different balance and imbalance between these sort of things. And it becomes a big focus for them. But the MMT people, are basically arguing for a system where, wherein if one country, especially the apex like imperial power like the U.S., were to do this, and U.S. dollars are essentially the the thing, the, the currency that underpins the global economic system and the global imperial hierarchy in terms of access to foreign exchange. Um, if if you just start printing a bunch of U.S. dollars. Sure, maybe all the stuff that they're saying is going to be true within the US, but what happens to global currency markets? What happens to the relative power of other currencies to get things like foreign exchange and the relative exchange rates? And that has a huge impact on industrial competitiveness in those countries, right? That's a huge component of uh, talk about. Robert Brenner's whole thing in the second chapter. That's a huge component. These these relative kind of uh, currency competitiveness has a huge, huge effect on industrial competitiveness. Um, So then if you push even further on some of this MMT uh, business, you'll get down to like some of their accounts of when that real inflationary limit kicked in. And so a lot of people say, well, what about Zimbabwe, right? Uh, they say, they point to a, a pretty recent real case of hyperinflation. And they say, well, what? how do you account for that? And all the MMT people, when they talk about those cases, they immediately go back to pretty standard economics. They just say, well, the actual real productive capacity of the Zimbabwean economy is low. It was low. And so they hit that that inflationary uh, line much quicker because it was much lower for them. And so then what you realize when you dig into MMT is, is it's just basically saying, look, the U.S. has massive imperial power and it should use it. It's basically saying, <laughs> look, we should use our fiscal power and not give much regard for these other countries and then sort of say, well, you can do the same thing too, even when it's very clear that you can't because your real productive capacity or however they want to frame it is different. And what makes that real productive capacity different? Well, what makes you know, Africa deindustrialized and, and underdeveloped relative to the rest of the world. Well, we all know the answer to that, right? The history of brutal colonialism and and then 
post-colonial forms of neo-colonial imperial conquest and IMF restructurings, et cetera. So we all know that that history, right? And they're this sort of trying to uh, trying to just take a little detour around that and not talk about it because they just say, well, they're sovereign currencies. They can sort of do the same thing. But then you push them on it and you realize, no, that inflationary limit is different. The, the whole thing about inflation, maybe this is a good uh, ending point. The whole thing about this debate about inflation, et cetera, et cetera, people are like, well, what causes it? What's causing it right now? They want these like technocratic solutions and technocratic ideas of, is it how, how much of it is rooted in supply? How much is rooted in demand? How much of it is due to rising wages, um, et cetera, et cetera. There are real fundamental point, the whole, the fundamental communist point about inflation, if if you read uh, Marx writing about inflation, if you read uh, Paul Matic, like post-war Paul Matic is really good to read about um, inflation in like the Marx and Keynes and things like that. It's, it's very, very straightforward. Inflation is part of, it's a political tool that exists within this, like this political class society. And within class society, there's this, this thing that kicks in when you do certain things, right? And the, the working class for a minute uh, gets some benefits. Those benefits are taken away by this inflationary mechanism. It's one of many different mechanisms to remove any gains that you ever get and put you back in place, right? To maintain the foundations of that class society. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is not just a, a faceless kind of a faceless machine developing places and driving forward. It's a political class society, right? That's upheld by a particular class, uh, a small class of people who own the majority of the world. And it's in their interest to retain that ownership. And inflation, like many other things, inflation is a knife at your throat. Inflation is the knife at the throat of the proletariat. It's always the thing that's going to be used to threaten you to get back in line, right? And that's why so many global struggles over the past several decades, we don't talk about it in these terms as much, but so many global struggles have been triggered by those like sudden price rises, right? Because that's the point at which that knife edges into your throat a little bit and draws a little blood. And so then oil prices go up and then you get a insurrection in Sudan, right? Or food prices go up and you start to get these little insurrections popping off, not just in 2008 or whatever, but back in the 80s, there were these massive food riots across the global South. And so these sort of things are, are very, very, um, they're just direct political tools of the ruling class, right? And that's the most fundamental thing that we have to remember when we when we talk about this stuff is like, no, there, there, there's clear political relations between these classes. There is a class war and that class is opposed to our class, the class of the vast majority of people, the proletariat. I mean, I I think that's that's brilliant. I will, uh, just adding to that, and then we'll wrap up as well. Is that uh, I mean, that is a, a a fantastic diagnosis of of the actual purpose and use of inflation or the fear of inflation, and we see it now as well happening again with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, uh, you know, in the fear of inflation. Uh, is like the number one argument that the biggest boosters of Bitcoin have to scare people into a Ponzi scheme um, where they're going to lose all their shirt and lose everything they own because they got scared into a cryptocurrency that's deflationary by design um, as a way to combat inflation. So once again, we see uh, in the in the history of the of 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 the elite ruling class using inflation um, as uh, this knife at the throat, 
scare people uh, into doing things or scare people into not doing things, right? Um, but all in the interest of this class. Um, and it's also no coincidence that it is the um, already uh, wealthy elite uh, and, and their useful idiots uh, in the Bitcoin space that are the loudest um, squawkers about inflation. I mean, that's what's called having a theory is that you can use it and apply it to understand uh, and have explanatory power about seemingly different things. This has just been a wonderful masterclass on theories of crisis, Phil. This has been really, really good. I want to thank you so much for spending uh, so much time with us. The 2022 is just the year of two hour long TMKs. We, we've been busting out just bang, long ass banger episodes because we keep talking to people who are, uh, entirely too interesting to stop talking to. Um, and so this is, this has been great. I will highly recommend, uh, to everybody if, you were uh, interested at all in what Phil had to say and you want to learn more and read in more depth um, a lot of what we've really, in, in a lot of ways, um, summarized but glossed over in this episode, uh, I highly recommend checking out Phil's uh, dissertation, which we will have a link to it in the episode description. Um, you know, we've only just looked at chapter one. It's a long chapter, to be fair, um, 100 pages, but we've only just looked at chapter one of the dissertation. There's still a lot more there worth digging into. And that just means that we will have to have you back at some time in the future, Phil, to actually talk about um, your, your really in-depth empirical case studies on China which is just more, you know, in, uh, only more important as time goes on. So with that said, thank you so much, Phil. Is there anything else you would like to plug? Where can people find you or your work? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, and that's just just one of five chapters in the in the dissertation. The in terms of where you can find my work, uh, I have several other articles up on the Brooklyn Rail uh, Field Notes website, and that has uh, a few different resources. I have another book that's not really related to this, but actually touches on some of the stuff I briefly talked about, about the industrialization, reindustrialization in the U.S. It's called Hinterland. That's out on uh, Reaction Press through the Field Notes book series. And uh and then, yeah, the, the dissertation, I have a little public uh, version of the dissertation. So people don't have to go through like JSTOR, uh, where it's like really long because they make you double space it. Um, and uh, the, you'll have the link for that. You, dear listeners, can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills, where we put out an additional premium episode every single week with just these kinds of analyses and conversations and discussions that you've heard here today. So catch us on Patreon. Uh, either see you in the premium feed later this week or back on the free feed next week. Until then, see ya. Adios.
killed.